Welcome to episode four of the PhD in Parenting podcast. The podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith. And I'm Erin. So today we want to talk about mental health issues during the pandemic, during graduate school, and after. I think this is a really important issue to talk about today. And like last time, we will be discussing our own experiences as well as what the research has to say. Yeah, when you first brought up this uh, subject, I found it really interesting because as I began researching and thinking about this, I do see that online there is a lot geared towards undergraduate students and mental health. I found a lot of articles relating to undergraduates and stress, substance abuse, um, but I found a little bit less about uh, how this relates to graduate students and then how does this relate to faculty. But then as a sort of pandemic has ebbed and flowed, um, we've seen a little bit more research about parental burnout and things of that nature. So you have found some uh, things as far as research. Would you like to launch into that today? Of course. Yeah, I think, you know, we've talked about the pandemic a little bit already, and it's probably going to keep popping up just because that's what we're going through right now. Um, We've talked a lot about how it has impacted our day-to-day lives, um, with in terms of scheduling and remote learning and things like that, but we haven't really uh, gotten into how it and you know how it affects our collective mental health. And I've sort of kept an eye a little bit on what's going on on social media and some uh, some news and things like that. And I've really seen this concept of the parental burnout pop up more and more. Um, the the New York Times parenting um, segment actually has had quite a few articles and they started pretty early. Like the first time I saw the term popping up, there is maybe an article from like April. Um, and then just recently they posted, they shared an article about um, now that school's out, how are people feeling? And um, they've done, you know, a different research. They've done different surveys at different times in the pandemic. And what I think what transpires is that it more and more people are experiencing high stress stress levels so uh the the one article that i was looking at um cited multiple uh surveys by the american psychological association one that was done in late april early may and then one that was done about a month later and they found that uh the first one found that 46 percent of parents with children under 18 said that their stress level was high. So that was 46% compared to 28% of adults without children. And that's something that I actually find very interesting um, and resonates with my own life a lot. I've noticed that I've gravitated a lot towards my friends and family that also have kids. I don't work with a lot of people that have children And I've uh, noticed myself really gravitating away a little bit from those friendships and um, spending more time with um, with you and my sister-in-law too. my sister-in-law. And I have like almost a system of calling each other every day and just being like, how are you doing? How are things going? Like sharing some pretty, um, you know, not so great parenting moments and just, you know, reassuring each other like we're in this together. It's going to be okay. Um, so I thought that was really interesting that there seems to be this like gap between how people are 
um, experiencing the pandemic. And that's not to say, uh, that's really important to me. That's not to say that the quarantine isn't hard for people who don't have children. I just think that the challenges are very, very different. They're very different. I do think that it would be extremely difficult to be, um, quarantined by yourself. Um, right. But difficult in a different way. And so I feel like, uh, that has, um, sort of separated me a little bit from the friends that don't have kids because I don't want to constantly complain about it. But at the same time, it is stressful and it is hard. Right. Right. It seems a little insensitive to like be commenting how stressed out we are being surrounded by our children. And then also, quite frankly, for me, um, my husband was um, also staying at home. And we, I think our marriage has survived for so long because we enjoy a certain amount of autonomy. Um, I enjoy the fact that I have my space. We talked about this before and he has his. Uh, Mm -hmm. This was like for three months, there's six of us jammed together. Our house isn't super huge. And um, I saw, I like that you sort of nod to the community of parents because in my social media circles and being friends with other parents from the schools, I saw that a lot of the parents were dealing with the same kind of pressures I was, you know, and people were like, well, Erin, you're a professor. So this like homeschooling should be really a piece of cake for you. And it just, it wasn't the case, you know, and um, we tried to approach it as a team. I mean, in some ways I took um, a little bit more ownership of the school stuff because I am the educator, but uh, both my husband and I found it pretty challenging to try to balance this all out. And so finding a little humor, I mean, there were a lot of sort of like little jokes about um, what it's like to be sort of balancing work and being a stay-at-home parent and trying to be the school teacher. So a lot of it was met with humor, but I like how you sort of suggested having a, a network and having a support group of people that are kind of in a similar position was helpful to you. Yes, it absolutely was. And I keep coming back to that as well. Um, nonetheless, I feel like, you know, the longer we're in this, the harder it does get and the the higher the exhaustion level are. The, the you know, I was saying the article had two, um, two surveys and the second survey was done a, a month later at the end of May. And now there were uh, it said 69% of parents were looking forward to the school year being over. <laughs> however, right. however, there's also 60% that said they have no idea how they're going to keep their child occupied all summer. Um, and so I think 60%, you know, p- stressing out about 70, almost 70% stressing out about homeschooling, but then also 60%, you know, stressing out about what are we going to do when we don't have anybody to help us out. I think that's, um, that's really telling too. And so what, what I've noticed is just the, the way that it's really for me built up over time. So I think, you know, when this first all started happening, I saw a lot of people, a lot of parents tackling it kind of day by day or week by week, um, and figuring kind of out how to handle it. And I think you, we've talked about this already. I think the, trying to set up routines and schedules was something that really helped me try to feel like I had some control of this like unpredictability. Um, but now we've been at it at four months uh, for about four months. And I just recently said, saw an article, um, uh, talking about the, and I know that there's a lot of discussions. There's a lot of insecurity there too, but, uh, there was a New York times article and a, a different one that, um, explained that the schools are considering a model where students are going back to school one uh, out of three weeks. 
So like they go one week and then they stay home two weeks. So so then you get into the situation where like, okay, I and I keep saying this, like, I feel like what I'm doing right now, I can do that this week and I can maybe do that next week. But I don't know that I can still be doing that in in September or October or November. And so it's sort of this idea of the of the building up. Um, And so in that context, I keep seeing the term uh, parental burnout more and more. And I think that's probably a term that operates a little bit on a scale. So if I go back to, you know, the way that the New York Times, just because this is what I've been reading and this is what I've been referencing, uses that term, they have a pretty narrow definition that has four characteristics. Um, I'll just um, list those real quick. Um, the four characteristics are, uh, you feel so exhausted that you can't get out of bed in the morning. Uh, you have become emotionally detached from your children. You take no pleasure or joy in parenting. And what's a key thing here is that that's a marked change in behavior for you. So if you were already experiencing any of those three before, then you're probably not, you'd probably don't fall into that category necessarily. Um, right. And uh, the the researchers that they're citing um, are talking about uh, parental burnout, burnout as a problem of risks out, outweighing resources. And so one of the example they give is that a risk might be driving your kids to certain activities, um, okay. which takes time and you have to be in traffic. And a resource might be um, trading carpool duties with another family so you're using the resource to sort of take away that risk and when we're getting into the the parental burnout situation that we're talking about now some of the risks are taken away as in you know we don't have to take our kids to soccer practice right now however the this huge chunk of homeschooling and keeping our children entertained is added but our resources are just so much more limited Um, And so there's this is what I struggle with a lot is that there's just nobody else that can take the kids for an afternoon because we're really not supposed to be doing that. Right. Right. Um, Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I can see how that because you're a little more isolated, too, than I am. um, But even though my mother, who helps take care of my kids often, lives like two miles away from me, uh, we were following the strict protocol as well. So I totally get it. Like, say I need to work on something, had a lot of committee work to do this week. I just kind of had to bunker down and, and, and do it with everyone around me because we're still trying to keep those lines kind of divided, right? And my um, mother also cares for my nephew. And they live with my sister who works in a um, district, uh, it's Detroit Public Schools, which has been a pretty highly um, infected area, uh, South eastern Detroit. So we're just trying to do the best we can. And I I see, I can totally see where all of our resources feel like they're being depleted. You can't spend any time. We can't really do play dates either, you know, anything like that. Right. Right. Yeah. So, Um, yeah. So that, and that, that makes it harder. And I think that sort of contributes to this like built up of um, exhaustion over time. Now, again, like I said, um, that's the definition in the New York times is a little bit of a, um, 
broader uh, definition. I've seen sort of, uh, that's a narrow, I'm sorry, that's a more narrow uh, definition. I've seen some broader ones um, that list uh, more general uh, symptoms such as um, snapping at little things, having a hard time focusing, ruminating over the same things over and over again, feeling exhausted, even with a lot of coffee and sleep, um, feeling like you have to force yourself to be happy, fantasizing about the days where you were kid free. I caught myself doing that the other day, and that was a little strange. Um, trouble st- sleeping, um, lack of interest in things that used to be fun, uh, feeling guilty or ashamed or anxious a lot. Um, those are And those are things I think um, that we... Uh, that we experience in a lot of, or those are, when I saw that list, um, I felt like that resonated with me a lot. Um, but at the same time, that's, I feel like that's something that I've also um, experienced before the quarantine. That's not specific to yes. the quarantine. And so I think um, that's an, in, that's an interesting thing an, an interesting aspect to think about in terms of mental health and grad school. I feel like a lot of those were things that I experienced during grad school. Um, and while I was on the job market, um, I don't know, does that, um, does that resonate with you? Do you feel? Yeah. I don't know if you can, I'm kind of like laughing. I'm not, I don't mean to chuckle. This is certainly a a serious topic, but um, I would say I'm like 10 out of 10. Um, You know, the, the ruminating over the same things, that one is something that I think I've done my whole life. I don't know, just kind of like mulling over the situation and how it could have been better or different, or just thinking about some impending disaster or whatever uh, speaks a little bit to how I've been as a person probably my whole life. Um, This idea of the trouble sleeping, that's something that I've kind of struggled with, uh, feeling exhausted, even with the coffee. Um, And that does really speak to my experience in graduate school, but even a little bit before. And so I'm a pretty transparent person, as you know. Um, I I don't mind sharing details of my life, but I was, as we were kind of putting together the notes for this episode, um, I thought it might be sort of interesting to talk a little bit about my own experiences. And I mean, I was like, okay, does this start in graduate school? No. Does it start before then? I mean, I think some of the things that I've been dealing with go back all the way maybe to junior high school, which I mean, is probably pretty key because it's adolescence. It's a formative time in one's life. And um, I had a pretty wonderful, I would say a pretty good childhood, but I got to junior high and suddenly like being smart wasn't cool. I had the thick glasses, uh, which, you know, I guess are kind of hip now, but back in my day, I was labeled a nerd, you know, and all this stuff that like really gets us somewhere in graduate school wasn't really cool at that era. So I I kind of struggled with feelings of self-esteem. Um, I, you know, I just, I, I had some issues with that, but then, um, I, I talked about this a little bit, uh, when I was in my twenties, my father, uh, got diagnosed with cancer and, um, I really had trouble dealing with that. Um, my father had always been super healthy, like a, an athlete, a swimmer. And when he got really sick, I kind of, I tended to internalize everything. And I started having these bouts, uh, where I felt dizzy. I couldn't breathe. Everything felt like it was sort of very surreal. Um, these are all, of course, classic uh, generalized anxiety disorder symptoms. I didn't know that at the time. I really felt like something was really wrong with me. I felt like I was just, you know, what what's going on? I, I, so I went to a doctor and um, it was strange because they kept asking me about my dad. And I remember thinking, why are they asking me so much about my father when yeah. I'm the one that clearly something's going on with? And, you know, it was, you know, I was having classic panic and anxiety. 
Um, and then to kind of complete this like uh, chaotic circle, um, unfortunately, my father did pass away. I would say roughly four months later, I found out I was pregnant. A couple months after that, I got married. But then after that, I moved into a place with my new husband. And then, you know, I had a son. Shortly after that, I had a daughter. And then I started my master's program. And, you know, you can probably, I see you looking at me right now, like, you know, this is a recipe <laughs> a for just, yeah, yeah you know, yeah. but I was like, well, I'm going to do all this stuff and it's going to be great. And, um, you know, I'm going to, it sounds so cliche, but I was like, you know what, I'm going to use my father's passing as like a sort of milestone, touchstone, if you will. I'm going to take this idea that like my, I don't mean to get emotional, but my dad's life was so short. Um, he passed when he was about 57, which just seems so young to me now. And it I does. thought I'm going to, yeah, you know, like I'm going to move forward. And, but then I started having the anxiety and these bouts of not feeling quite right. And some repetitive thoughts in my head that weren't really particularly positive. And, but like, that's a lot on my plate, you know? And so it was the kids, it was grad school, master's program at the time. Um, so I feel like all of that kind of just played out in this space of graduate school and um, what we're reading here. So again, a lot of the things that they're sort of speaking to now, pandemic, I feel like in a strange way, I've been dealing with for a super long time. Uh, does any of that echo anything um, in your life? Have you had any issues that you care to share with us or? Yes, for me, it was, it didn't, I don't have, I can't trace it back as far as you can. Um, for me, it was really the the biggest struggle that I had was after uh, my daughter was, my first daughter was born. And we talked about that already a little bit um, a few, a couple episodes ago. Um, I it was interesting to me because I had read like the yellow wallpaper so many times um, right. and still I somehow fell into this like pretty like deep depression um, after she was born. Um, I had never like it. What I was never suicidal. So it wasn't, um, the, you know, it, I didn't hit rock bottom in that way, but it was just sort of, it built up over time. And I think it was, for me, it was a combination of, you know, postpartum, maybe a little bit hormonal, hormonal, but also a lot of sort of the circumstances surrounding it, the lack of confidence and the, you know, the inability to really like build that confidence and feeling like I could provide for her by myself or, you know, with my partner um, properly. Uh, that was, you know, at the same time as I had this really difficult, as I hit this really difficult stretch in my, in the PhD program where I didn't feel that I knew exactly what I was doing and I was really struggling to figure out what I want, what direction I wanted to take, what I wanted my dissertation to be. And, um, again, you know, the, like I said, the qualifying exams, were a few months after she was born. And that really, my confidence really took a hit with that because um, that didn't go well at all. And so these things kind of came together and then sort of like built up very slowly over the course of a year, really, um, until I finally, somebody suggested to me that I might have my midwife, it was actually my midwife, my midwife asked me how it was going at my one year checkup and sort of everything kind of fell apart at that appointment. And um, so, so yeah, I, you know, I think I recognize a lot of those experiences too. Um, that was, I was more, um, that was more uh, a matter of depression really. Um, and then, right. and then once 
I was really concerned when I had, I was really terrified. And I think that's partially why I waited a little bit longer to have the second one than I originally wanted to, because I was so terrified that that was going to happen again. Right. And the midwives kept a pretty good um, close eye on it. And when, you know, that now they do like a little, they give you that little um, questionnaire at your six week checkup already. And the second time I, um, scored a lot higher on the anxiety scale. So I didn't struggle with depression again, but I've sort of, um, dealt more with, uh, some like mild anxiety patterns, which right. that's, that would, that's something that I'm struggling with more now. I I'm noticing that the quarantine makes me extremely, um, and the, and the coronavirus make me extremely anxious. Um, yes. or not, you know, not like extremely, extremely anxious but it I'm definitely struggling with with it more than I had in the past but they are emotions and experiences that I recognize because I have had had them in the past so there's like sense. so much no like I feel like there's so much that we could spring off and like unpack to use a very grad school term there's a lot to unpack here yeah um, because a lot of this you know uh, I think one thing that you mentioned was that it was you know a year and that's something that I think um a lot of uh, folks, men and women, but because mental health is still rather stigmatized, I know that when I was having, um, especially with my first son, because like you, you know, I think there's just this newness of it all. And am I doing it the right way? And if I was having these feelings, I I read so much. I I know you did as well. I know you read all about it. I know you know all the signs and symptoms, but I was just like, "Uh, if I tell someone though, you know, something's going to happen and I don't want to risk. I know it sounds very illogical, but I was like, you know, if I say something that I'm having some of these feelings, something might happen and they might take away my child or something like that, you know? And I know that seems really far out now, but at the time it I was like, I'm not going to say anything. I'll just, I'll bear it alone. And um, I feel like that even plays into some of the work that you did in your dissertation too, with this like myth of kind of having it all. I'm going to be the have it all or the lean in kind of, I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to keep working hard and maybe it will remedy itself on its own. Um, Do you think that's something that you've seen in your research, like for the dissertation? Does that make sense where I'm going with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think my dissertation ended up just being um, a little bit in some ways, a way to make sense of that experience, because I was so taken aback by it, because I basically, you know, for me, I didn't recognize the signs at all. Um, And then, you know, once somebody suggested it to me, and I started seeing a counselor, and I started getting better, the big question for me was like, how could that happen that I, you know, that I was so aware of how this happened, how like, um, or some of the some of the factors, what postpartum depression can look like, and how it you know it comes about in some cases. Um, and I thought that I knew that you know ideals of motherhood were you know unrealistic and all these things. And then I noticed the the more I thought about it, that I had really somehow still subscribed to them. And so for me, that that became like the guiding question was for like for me to find out and to understand how it could, how that could still happen, even though I, I felt that I, I knew, um, that motherhood wasn't going to be easy. And I still somehow had this like internalized expectation that it was this really joyful thing, um, that would just immediately, you would just immediately fall into this, um, ideal role and, 
so the dissertation for me became a way to make sense of that and to to understand what the powerful powerful narratives are that we're still sort of exposed to and how we internalize them and what happens when motherhood doesn't feel the way that you think it's going to feel. Right. No. And I I think that's like a really actually healthy coping mechanism. And I actually learned a little bit from reading your project where I went, wait a minute, I I had never really um, realized that like the anxiety I was feeling was also likely postpartum. You know, it didn't get it. It's like you can be so educated about these topics. But then when it comes to like sort of being introspective, I think we kind of miss it sometimes. So um, I really enjoyed like reading your work and thinking about it in a meaningful way because I I was like, it made so much sense to me um, coming to it after having four kids. You know, hindsight, of course, is wonderful, but I, I, yeah. it would have been helpful to read maybe uh, 10, 15 years ago. Um, so oh, that's, I don't really think we great. were alone. <laughs> no. no, I would have loved to see it. I, I always, um, I reference it to my own mother because I was kind of, you know, revealing to her a little bit about some of these feelings after the fact, of course. Um, right. So yeah. I don't think we're really alone with any of this or these feelings that kind of culminated in graduate school. Um, and so I had actually done a little bit of research. Again, a lot of what I found um, kind of related back to undergraduates, uh, but there are more and more studies about PhD students and mental health. Um, interestingly enough, a lot of them were focused more on people in the STEM fields and research okay. heavy uh, positions, which I thought was interesting. Um, and so I thought I had one study that actually comes from Flanders, Belgium. Um, it's interesting to me that of the studies I did find, a lot of them were based in Europe um, rather than the United States, which I think could be telling. Not sure. That is interesting. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I just thought, or maybe that's just, you know, um, where my research led me. Um This article is actually from 2017, so still relatively current. It's titled uh, Work Organization and Mental Health Problems in PhD Students, and I'll include the link and the authors to that study in our notes for this episode. Um, But I thought this was an interesting quote, and it says, although universities were traditionally regarded as low-stress environments, research on occupational stress among academics indicates that it is alarmingly widespread and on the rise. Some studies suggest that stress is more prevalent in younger academics, a group that typically faces high levels of job insecurity. As a result, the media is increasingly reporting testimonies of depression, anxiety, burnout, and emotional exhaustion. So um, that to me is uh, nothing new. It kind of seems to sort of maybe echo what we did sort of observe anecdotally, at least in ourselves, but maybe in um some of the students we met in our program, um, and I thought that was kind of telling. Um, it says that uh, the few studies on PhD students, six, six, oh, sorry, um, uh, suggest that stress may stem from various problems in the PhD process, such as problems concerning one's own learning, different aspects of insecurity. Uh, this could uh, be financial insecurity, insecurity concerning unwritten rules, frequent evaluation, and the competitive atmosphere. And so this was something we brought up earlier, too. Um, we were sort of mentioning something about how maybe some of us in the field may have already had this like sort of tendency to be introspective. Could you say a little bit more about what that was you were t- talking about before? Yeah, I remember when we uh, when we talked about melancholy in one of the one of the classes, I think it was there was the suggestion that, you know, that um, 
the I'm sorry. Uh, there was the suggestion that some that depression and um, you know, if you will, melancholia are more prevalent among um, or seem to be very prevalent in the academy, and that was always my sense too that the academy or where we were that was a safe place to talk about depression because so many of our peers um, and so many of the professors that we're dealing with were you know you know, obviously understanding, but also had experienced that themselves. And the implication there was that um, maybe, as you're saying, introspective people, you know, the the kind of person that seeks out a graduate degree that is sort of uh, invested in that deep thought and um, critical thinking and things like that, that they have more of a tendency toward um, a melancholy um character, if you will. And so I think that it makes it a little bit sort of like a chicken and egg um, situation where right. um, is there maybe are maybe the, the people that we're finding in this environment, do they maybe have a tendency already towards those kinds of mental health issues, um, especially when we're talking about depression and anxiety, um, that then are exacerbated by certain factors of the environment. And I think, you know, we've already talked about job insecurity. I think that's a huge right. factor. Um, the self-esteem, I actually, I think it's interesting that you're, that the article that you're referencing says frequent evaluation, because I struggled a lot with getting no feedback once I hit <laughs> the dissertation right. stage because I was so used as you know as you always right. like to say we're all good students I right. was so used to like writing my 15 20 page paper and then getting a you know feedback and mostly a pretty solid grade and then once you get into the dissertation stage there's so little feedback um so right. that was that um actually made me that led to a lot of insecurity on my part because I never had or I felt like I didn't often get somebody that feedback from somebody that said you're on the right track like this is great uh keep working at it it just felt like you know you went in with a 10 page 15 I don't know that's I don't remember how long my perspective was but it was <laughs> right. a fairly right. brief document and you know you weren't getting you know really much feedback until that was turned into a 200 page document. And so, um, right. That was something that I struggled with. That was the kind of insecurity that I struggled with while I was in grad school. So I don't yeah, know how I to, think, you know. yeah, no. Um, I think like in some ways I agree, like I liked getting the grades and I liked when grades were posted, even though, as I was told, look, if you get anything other than an A minus in a graduate course, just forget it. Um, which is kind of cruel, but at any rate, you know, I still liked seeing when the grade <laughs> was posted. Um, someone, yeah. one of my professors along the way said something like that. And I said, well, really? Um, and I know too, that American universities tend to inflate their grades. I've been told that as well, but I did like, I, I had a sense of accomplishment when I got that grade, but yeah. then there is, um, all that other type of evaluation, which I found incredibly nerve wracking. And so I said this earlier, it's like, here I am this person that's always struggled with, am I good enough? You know, am I, am, am I yeah. good enough? Am I okay? So in the one sense, when I do get the good grade, I feel like extremely rewarded. But then I remember we have different um, evaluations of teaching. And so yeah. um, I remember, horrible. yes, right. It's this really weird situation where a faculty member, 
um, usually whom, you know, the graduate teaching assistant has never met, comes into class one day and, you know, takes notes and kind of comments on how they're teaching. And in some cases, we'd only been teaching. It might be a person's very first semester teaching. And I found that to be a little unnerving. Um, then there's also another part of this, which I, I'm going to put it out there, I find completely unnerving is um, the student evaluations of my teaching. Yes. Um, I'm probably getting off on a little bit of a tangent, but just that type of scrutiny and evaluation to me, I never really feel like those are valid because I feel like in some ways the evaluations are whether or not they just like you as a person. Um, I think that has a lot to do with it. Yeah. And um, less about with a quality sometimes, um, you know, I like the feedback, you know, I would look at some of the other ratings of other professors and this professor is really challenging. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. You know, exactly. and then exactly. Then the question becomes, okay, like it's hard in this class to get an A. Is that like, a good right. thing or a bad thing. And right. so how does that, you know, how does that lead? And I think there's, you know, I think it's not just um, all, all students are going to, you know, lean to it one way or the other. I think you're going to get a mix. Right. But right. Uh, some, you, yeah, some people are going to say, you know, it's a great, you know, it sh a class should be challenging and other people are just not going to view it that way. And then th there's just not uh, a, a clear line in that. I always was very frustrated by the student evaluations yeah. too. So I just, I do to go back to that point of like, you know, that one, that can be a contributing factor to people feeling maybe some sense of depression. Um, and then, you know, beyond the job search, just kind of putting um, essays and things out there to get published. I know a lot of people have really great empowering stories about how they, I saw one, um, I'll have to find this online, but it was a, a, a female scholar who had actually made a skirt based on all of her rejection letters. I thought it was like an interesting, oh, did you see that? I, yeah, um, I think I saw that somewhere. That was I'll have cute. to look for that and see where that's posted. But she's like, you know, I'm going to take that. And basically the moral of the story was she did get the work published somewhere. But um, then I've heard other stories about people sort of wallpapering their office with all the rejection letters. But you know, you have to be a kind of strong person sometimes to deal with it. And quite frankly, when I have received feedback that wasn't positive, which I certainly have, all scholars have, um, that 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 hurts. I'm still, I'm a very sensitive person, as I know you are as well. And um, that can yeah, be a challenge. Actually, too. That's how I, that's how I felt about uh, the job market. Um, yeah, it's, it was very overwhelming to me to just know that it, that even even knowing and understanding that there were so many applicants to just one position, it was still difficult to not hear back at all or to hear back so late or um, and just the idea of like putting myself out there over and over and over again. Uh, that was that something that I was that was really challenging for me. Yeah, right. I feel like that's I'm back to my junior high mindset of like, <sighs> Yeah. Oh my gosh. You know, so, um, so again, it's this like really weird sort of yin and yang, this sort of like duality of like, uh, I, on the one hand crave the positive feedback, but then on the other hand, I feel sort of like let down. Um, and so it probably wouldn't surprise you then, uh, the study I referenced earlier from, um, Flanders suggested that of the symptoms listed, it said 51% of the PhD students, um, had experienced at least two, uh, symptoms related to mental health problems. Problems. 
40% reported at least three symptoms, and 32% reported at least four symptoms. So there's more in that study if you'd like to see some of these symptoms, but they have to deal with stress, anxiety, those markers that we've already talked about. Um, and then I went to another uh, later study from uh, UC Berkeley, and again, the results were that about 47% of PhD students scored as depressed. Um, students in the arts oh, and humanities wow. uh, fared poorly and 64% scored as depressed. So again, uh, within our field, um, we talked yeah. a little bit about that melancholia and that tendency toward the maudlin. I don't know. I mean, that's a kind of like, you know, again, is it causation or correlation? But it's just it seems to echo what we've observed in our own lives and then, um, you know, kind of what we noted. Because I told you when I finally got to uh, Wayne State to the PhD program, I kind of felt as though I'd found my tribe in a sense because yeah, the things true. that were, you know. Yeah, it was the same way for me. Yeah. It was like, and okay. ultimately, um, ultimately, the way that I ended up, you know, getting a little bit better was because one of our friends, you know, I shared my experience with one of our friends and um, he like practically took me by the hand and walked me to the counseling services and said, there's somebody there that's really great and we're going to get you set up. And I ended up seeing uh, that counselor for like a long time, like once or once, once a week at first. And then I spread it out a little bit more. I saw her for a long time and she was really great, but yeah. I think, you know, just having that other person, I would, I don't think I would have made my way over there by myself and to yeah. just have the other person, um, who had gone through uh, some of some similar experiences and was able to say, "Hey, you know, I'll walk you over there. Um, that's and I'll show you everything." Uh, was really yeah. helpful. I believe I know the friend you refer to, and that warms my heart because I remember sort of hearing about that. And I mean, that's really important that again, those services were there for us. And while we yeah. might not really have any official hacks this evening. We just want to encourage anyone that is listening, if you can seek out those resources within your university or college. Um, I know because of the pandemic, there are a lot of mental health services available right now to people in the U.S. and I would imagine overseas as this is definitely taking um, a toll on us. As we've noted, this is something that we've kind of dealt with in the academy for a long time. Um, but I think more and more now as mental um, health is less stigmatized, we're having more open conversations about it. Um, and so I wanted to kind of transition then. So we've talked a little bit about what it was like uh, relating to graduate school and the pressures there. Um, moving beyond the job search stage, and now someone is a first-year researcher, and now someone's on the tenure track, do we feel like it gets any easier? I mean, I know the answer is probably an obvious one, but what do we think? What happens now when that person that we just told you about, aka me, uh, was already, you know, <laughs> had the, right, finally got through graduate school and is now in a um, full-time faculty position, or I think I'm now technically uh, an assistant professor. Um, we do it a little different at the career college level, but at any rate, you know, um, yeah. does it get any better? Or am I just dealing with another host of issues related to stress, anxiety, mental health? And what do you think? Where, where are you at with that? <laughs> well, um, I think one thing that has helped me was like you finally getting help. Um, I have to mention that I finally went to counseling. This is so ridiculous. But when my father passed away, a really kind counselor came and said, you know, we offer services. We offer free grief counseling through the hospital. Um, it's open. You can come whenever you want. And I said, okay. 
Uh, so it took not the first bout of having issues after the first pregnancy or the second pregnancy or the third pregnant. It was a third pregnancy, I want to say, where I finally um, just realized that some of the things that were happening to me were mental health related and I needed help. So I actually went to that counselor seven years after the fact when the free counseling oh, was wow. offered. Uh, yeah. And she was like, you know, I called and I said, you know, um, so you told me that I could come when I was ready. And she said something like, well, seven years is probably the longest that someone's ever waited, but yeah, come on in. And so <laughs> I did Great. kind of, yeah. I think, um, I think I was able to really hash out, uh, some of the details, uh, with her of kind of like what was going on in my mind and why I was still really struggling with anxiety and panic. And, um, really through talk therapy, I really had some good breakthroughs. Um, I, yeah. I was really pleased where like, it just kind of started to melt away. That's not to say I haven't encountered the um, random anxiety or panic attack once in a while, but I did find one final article which speaks to um, being a professor, and this is um, from Halal uh, Lachul, um, and this again comes from uh, Switzerland. So I, everything I seem to find was um, from the European uh, side of things, but this says, this is a great quote, it says, um, even after tenure, the pressure does not go away. Instead, we simply transition from one type of stress to another, from being anxious about publishing and securing tenure to being worried about funding, deadlines, increased administrative duties, the pressure to secure more prestigious grants and awards, and concerns for our reputation. The hyper-competitive academic culture has ways of always keeping you on your toes. And so that kind of spoke to me as well, even though I'm not really in a tenor track program, um, there are the stresses of just like the changing job market um, in Michigan, where we're at. There have been colleges that have simply closed their doors. Uh, one college I worked at as an adjunct professor just let everyone know in uh, November that the college would be closing its doors in December. And uh, faculty oh, wow. that had been there for a long time were let go. Uh, so that kind of has us stressed out sometimes um, the way that COVID, again, may shape or change uh, what we're doing, the work we do. Yeah, that seems to be uh, an important factor um, for sure. How and I, I'm getting that a lot from the people that I work with too. That there's just so much um, unpredictability about what the fall semester is going to look like, even and you know how much of it. And there seem to be, you know, the more I talk to people, the more I hear about all these different models of how teaching is going to work and is it going to be in person or is it going to be online or what are the different like mix models and so I think that that's a probably I would imagine that that would be a very stressful situation especially when you're doing it with kids at home right and then to speak to like our partners um you know, we're both married to men who go out into the world, right? I don't know. Um, my husband was uh, furloughed, if you will, for about three months. He works in uh, construction, but now he's working again and yeah. going out into the world and being around other people. And, you know, I feel like you mentioned something earlier about kind of the anxiety level ebbing and flowing yeah. through all this. I was okay. I don't know. I don't think I've ever been okay through this whole thing, but it was easier kind of to feel like we were protected in our little bubble, so to speak. But now he's out into the real world. He has to go to Home Depot. He has to order things. He has to go into people's homes. And I feel like with that, there's another sort of added level of like, I'm still, now I'm nervous, you know? And if I do go back yeah. to class, there's all those, um, 
factors, right, of like who I'm going to encounter, who's going to be there. And I don't know if you're feeling any of that in your home life as well, thinking about the future, thinking about your own work or um, any of that. That's difficult. It's difficult for us. Um, what, something that I'm struggling with right now is just that the the numbers are rising again, as we all know, I'm sure. Right. And um, so we have taken some liberties recently. I'm still not um, taking the kids to the store or letting them, you know, really go anywhere um, except for the grandparents. We've seen the grandparents a couple times. And um, now I'm thinking about, you know, do I need to scale back on that? Because that's really difficult. You know, it seems like it's already so little that we get to do. And now to tell our children, oh, no, that was that was too much. Never mind. Right. You know, we're going to go back to um, the bubble, which was kind of like a fun experiment when we were in the middle of it and we didn't know how long it was going to last. But then, you know, now to take even the little bit of liberty that we have given them away again uh, is is very stressful for me. And also the idea that, you know, it does put that insecurity on everything. The Like I, I think I mentioned this right now, my middle kid, he's he's going to be four this month. He is the only one that is in a daycare. But they have been very clear and explicit that as soon as anything, you know, becomes questionable, they're going to close down. Oh, wow. And so then I'm in a situation where I'm trying to work full time with three children at home. And that's terrifying to me. Like, just, right. you know, just like not knowing at what point they might just have to shut down. Um, yeah, that's, that's a very stressful situation for me. Definitely. Right. And to go back to what we talked about earlier, the signs of like burnout, I mean, it's nice to have at least that little bit of time to yourself, right. To sort of, we need some of that time for self-care, but if we're taking it away, how's that going to work? Yeah, exactly. I think so. I think self-care is that's that's sort of something I could go on a separate rant. Maybe we'll have a different episode about um, about that. But those are like self-care moments are are literally like, you know, trying to wake up 10 minutes before everybody else so that I can brush my teeth without anybody else in the room and things like that. Like there are no bubble baths, no pedicures in my life anywhere right now. Yeah, it's um, and I think as we move forward, it's going to be everyone says, well, you've got to take this time for yourself. But how do we do that when we're working from home? Our spouses are working sometimes outside of the home. You know, um, everyone's trying to do their part. But like, where do you find that time? I can't I can't stay up until two in the morning to like, you know, read or have a cup of tea. (laughs) Because, again, when you go back to the burnout list, I'm exhausted. Exactly. So so what do we do? I don't want to leave on a super um, negative note. I mean, I do want to suggest that there are resources at most uh, places of higher education. Um, I know this is going to be sort of an oddball question, but do you feel like in the publishing world, do you have those resources available to you? Uh, Because we've been speaking sort of solely to the like higher education, the academy, but I know you kind of work in this very important field, super like crucial to our success in the academy, which is in the publishing world. Um, Do you feel like uh, there's anything out there like a safety net for you in that field? I don't think that there's anything off the top of my head that where I would know that I could um, that I could go. I do know that when um, 
I know I mentioned that my company temporarily suspended operations. And I remember that I got note from the HR department that the health insurer um, offers like a handful of free, completely free mental health appointments. So I do know that I sort of had that extra coverage from my insurer, but I don't think that there is anything specific to the, um, to the publishing world um, that I'm at least aware of that I might use or that might, I might fall back on. No. Right. Because I mean, I feel like you're in a very high stress uh, situation as well. I've talked a lot about, you know, teaching evaluations, but there's a lot of pressure in your world as well. So I don't want to sort of like overlook that and say, well, it's teaching, teaching, you know, and the stress of administrative work. But I know that your field as well is high pressure, a lot of tasks, a lot of things going on, a lot of juggling things all at once. Um, for me, it's like I'm teaching a class online, but I can find a quiet moment. Like I can, I'm able to like grade an essay in a way that might not be the same way that you have to speak to possible authors and things like that. And sort of like a, you know, so I just think there's yeah. um, other challenges there that maybe I've overlooked this episode. So I just wanted to give you a chance to like address oh. that with, you know. <laughs> yeah. I, there's, you know, I think that we're, um, we're absorbing some of the anxiety that other people are experiencing. So like, you know, for us, uh, it's like we're, we're trying to plan, um, we're trying to plan a, pr a publishing schedule. Um, and so we have, you know, we have deadlines, our authors have deadlines. Um, and then, you know, there's every, you know, you'll, you check in with them as much as you can, but once in a while you'll still get somebody who can't meet a deadline. Um, and of course we all, you know, I know this, like I, I have that experience myself. I know that like there are certain situations, you know, writing for a deadline doesn't always work. It works sometimes, right. but it just does not always work. And so I completely understand. But a lot of times, you know, that does make my life a little bit harder when I then have to go back to the next person and say, well, this is not going to come in when it was supposed to come in and we have to reshuffle, you know, what we're doing on our end. Um, so, um, and then also, yeah, sort of absorbing the emotional challenges that other people experience, like, you know, I'm thinking about the manuscript and the explanation entails, you know, something that um, happened somewhere else that maybe doesn't necessarily have anything to do with me or whatever. But I do have that, you know, relationship with the author that I'm trying to nourish. And so um, sometimes those conversations can get pretty personal so that, you know, you're absorbing their 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 emotion and what happens to them in the same way that, you know, you might do with students. Right. Not, you know, not that I'm comparing authors to students, but just sort of like that no. interaction with other people and what they have going on. Um, right. A lot of times can do. No, can do I think that it's like all, I think that again, it's like all sort of like combines and this like overwhelming sort of um, process. So I think we have had a lot to talk about this episode, but things I've been thinking yeah. of that we could um, talk about later that we haven't touched upon yet might even be like, okay, so um, we're, this is the parenting, you know, uh, 
podcast as well. And I'm thinking maybe in the future we could sort of address how we help our children should they, um, you know, maybe not necessarily our children per se, but children in general, um, how they're sort of coping. I was thinking about, you know, working uh, with as an academic, if you have a child with special needs, that kind of thing. So this episode in and of itself has given me a lot of food for thought. And I'd love to invite any other scholars out there who may have suggestions or tips, or just any experiences they want to share to email us. Uh, that's at the PhD in Parenting Podcast at Gmail address. And then we also have an Instagram presence as well. But in the meantime, I just like in, to encourage everyone to stay well. And, you know, I hope everyone's feeling their best out there. I know it's overwhelming. Um, and we're here for you. Uh, we, we can yes, kind of definitely relate to what everyone's going through. Um, any final closing thoughts? Um, no, no, just that, you know, like you said, we really look forward to um, continuing these conversations elsewhere and look forward to hearing from, you know, any listeners that want to share their experiences. Um, the Instagram handle, I'll just throw that in as PhD in parenting. Um, yeah, and I'm just going to echo what Aaron said and say, keep well. Thanks. And thanks for listening to us.